It's a joy to be in the Word today, and I hope that um, this is the first time you've been in the Word this week. It is, of course, the Lord's desire for you to be in the Word constantly and to every day uh, get into the Word of God. It is, uh, if you don't have a way to do that in a calendar form by Uversion, Uversion has a lot of different reading calendars that can help you get through the Word of God, but if you don't have that back in the back on that white table, you'll see a trifold like this. You can use this to take you through the Word of God as we approach the end of the year. It is always my encouragement to you to begin this next year doing just that. And in doing that, all the blessing uh, of knowing who the Lord is, His nature and His ways will be yours. You'll begin to have discernment as it concerns the things of this world because the Lord does not change nor does His Word change. And so you'll be able to know those things. Plus, it holds up the Holy Standard in front of you. Uh, you're able to see what He expects from you and gives you an opportunity then to do those things. And so it's uh, my encouragement always for you to do that. We're going to take some time to be in the Word this morning. Of course, it's a continued study, and we're in 2 Corinthians, and God's plan for a healthy church is our study, a study through the books of First and 2 Corinthians. Material possessions is our focus as we get to chapter 9, New Testament standard for giving, the pathway of blessing. And so it's going to be a time where we will delve in, and, and this is what we always do during this time, and we study it because uh, this Word of God, because it is God's Word to us and the very, uh, His very Word to us, and we know that it is. Uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, it's supernatural in character. It was authored by God, and so uh, what was produced were the very words and the thoughts of the only true God. So by default, then, if we understand that very clearly, as uh, the Word would have us do, because of its author and nothing else, it's supernatural. But there are other things that point to that supernatural character. It is infallible. Infallible just means that uh, everything it asserts is absolutely true. Uh, everything it says is historically, prophetically, spiritually, physically true. It's also inerrant, which means in the original manuscripts that were written, the very document written by the inspired writer is without error. It's complete. Genesis to Revelation, 66 books. Uh, it contains everything necessary for life and for conduct and godliness and for salvation. And so uh, there are no more inspired revelations for us to wait for beyond this one. This is the one. It is authoritative, so it is not a book of suggestions, which you can either choose or choose not to do. It is, when it speaks, we had better listen. All creation falls under its authority, whether they admit it or they, they agree with it. Everyone will be judged by its absolute word, and so uh, by its standards, everyone will come up under, whether they uh, acknowledge that now or not. It's sufficient. All truth necessary for life is found in the book. The Bible doesn't need to be helped. Uh, or jump-started by human wisdom. In fact, the infusion of human wisdom into or in place of biblical uh, truth stunts the growth of the believer. It is compelling. It just means wherever it's unleashed, it has power to impact. And it alone is the determining factor, the standard, if you will, in all things. It is the universal standard by which all things are measured. It collides with lives and changes them, and so God expects his people to listen to what his word says and to read it uh, themselves and to then go and do what it says. And then it's also trustworthy, this book is trustworthy. You have a book that contains the moral law, the physical laws. You have a book that has scientific trustworthiness. You have a book that's historically trustworthy, a book that is prophetically trustworthy. And then, of course, from an objective standpoint, uh, uh, you have a book that tells you about you, and you know that it's right, and it opens you up and reveals what's inside, and it speaks to your inner self. It shows where the faulty parts are and gives you the right parts to put in to, to do the repair. And all that being said, it, uh, there is some uniqueness in the early church, this church of the first century to which this book was written, the church of the New Testament, from whom instructions we're receiving today. Uh, some of that uniqueness is something that set it apart from the church today. Uh, they had apostles and prophets unique to the time of the early church, along with that, sign gifts that verified the speaker and verified the message, which we don't have today. Uh, God was revealing more of his plan. Uh, the time of Jesus was in the very recent past, of course, and and there was an actual chronological and physical closeness to him because of that. Uh, the people of the first century were not long removed from Jesus' life. Some of them still alive in the first century churches that actually walked around with Jesus. There was a passion for his return because of that. And a fire and eagerness because of the closeness to him. Uh, certainly a purity around that closeness to Jesus because they remember his teaching and they remember his life and his sacrificial death and his resurrection. Perhaps a more simple lifestyle uh, connected to the uh, that first century century time, uh, communal closeness to other believers, uh, a brotherhood or sisterhood, if you will, of those who were close to when it all began. Uh, and because of that closeness, really a productive testimony that emanated from that closeness uh, from them to their world. So 
there were some differences. Uh, some of the things they had, I'm sure we would like to recapture, wouldn't we? We would love to be, uh, have that close feeling, uh, chronological, physical closeness, which we'll get during the thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, a joyous time where we'll be able to see and hear and do in physical closeness to him. And we'd like to recapture some of that today. So uh, there are some differences, certainly, but along with that first-century uniqueness, and here's where we kind of tie into where we're going today, they had some things in common that we have with them. Uh, to start with, we have the same message the gospel that saves Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and was buried and rose three days later according to the scripture. Paul says that was the main thing I was supposed to give to you and that's the thing I did give to you. It hasn't changed at all. It still remains the exact same thing. We serve the same God. We have the same Savior, Jesus Christ. We have the same Holy Spirit who was at work in uh, that first century at work still. The same teaching, the same principles, the same demands, and the same blessings for our lives. So those things are not unique to the early church. They extend throughout all the centuries right on down to us. And so when we read the scriptures then and make contact with the life of the first century church, both in the time of Jesus and in the time of Paul, here's the thing. We have to hear what they say and recognize, and this is very important, that what they say is direct truth for our generation. And again, it's just not a Bible, a book of suggestions, what it says we're to do, we are to do. And so they say that directly to our generation. So then we are compelled to receive what it says both effectively and openly and then be prepared to respond. And of course, that's my encouragement to you. And, and we can't force the Bible onto the Bible. Ideas from our sophisticated culture, you know, uh, psychoanalysis and personal evaluation and all those kinds of things. See, the Bible doesn't need any of that. Uh, our culture of supposed legal and moral loopholes, well, it's okay because, you know, of this, I don't have to do that, that kind of thing. You can't force that on the Bible. We have to take the Bible and realize that, and all those things we talked about at the beginning, uh, that, and that what it says, it says to our time as well. And so we come to that conclusion, and I know that uh, I'm just reminding you of these things because they're not new to you. Certainly, if you've been here, you've heard them over and over again, but because I'm, I'm reminding that uh, to you today, because I want you to turn in your copy of Second Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 1, and realize that God's speaking to our time right now. And we are, like we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10, uh, trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. That's really the source, and, and uh, the source is this word, and, and the motivation to study it is to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. And we identified some handholds last time as we began this chapter, and we'll just call them principles, uh, and things the Lord expects us to know and to obey. And these are things that are very important. Now, as we got to this point, you know, we, we didn't just jump right here into chapter 8 and then chapter 9 and just look at all these standards for giving and then just say, okay, well, I can't do that because that's beyond my reach. So what we did when we started this whole, this whole series, as we got to chapter 8, we took some time and we did some background on material possessions. And we looked through, uh, you know, where does it all come from? Is money moral? Because that's, that's, the, that's the, the posers, the virtue signalers of our day. You know, if you have a lot of money, you must not be moral. And, uh, of course, that's a false thing. Do I love money? Those are the questions. Jesus and money, every passage that dealt with Jesus and money, which he dealt with money uh, twice as many times as he, as he dealt with heaven and hell. So it's an important topic. He wanted to make sure people understood a heavenly perspective. And then wealth in my family, so biblical priorities. How do I use what comes in, and what are the priorities the Scripture gives us? So we went through all of that, and then we started chapter 8, and we started with uh, the New Testament standard for giving. That included attitudes that have to come to bear and, and personal management. How do I do this? Uh, how do I give, and how, how do I set it aside, and what's that supposed to look like? And then uh, church management. How's the church supposed to manage what comes in and what's beyond reproach, and, and how's it supposed to be overseen, and all of that stuff. We looked at all of that. And then now we've got to chapter 9, and now we're in what's called the pathway of blessing. And so we've got to this sections, and we didn't just jump to it, and it's an important section. And so I want you to read, if you would, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, which is where we are today. Uh, for it is, he says, Paul says, superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, verse 2, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians. And so principle number one we saw last time, and if you missed any of this, I've laid all this foundation. We went through all the scriptures and backgrounds. You can find us on uh, Spotify at Berean Journey Podcast. You can find us on YouTube. You can catch these things if you're interested in knowing the background. Uh, the whole series is laid out there. So the first, first uh, principle on this pathway of blessing that we saw last time is the New Testament giving is exemplary. 
So done right, it's commendable. That's what it means. Uh, I, don't have, I don't have to write to you about it. You already know, and I boast to you uh, about the, to, to the Macedonians. It's commendable. What you decided to do in this Corinthian church was commendable, and I boasted to the Macedonians about what you were doing. And, and if it's commendable, then that means the Lord will commend you for it. And remember, uh, when we see this Macedonian church and, and these other churches commended, it's not a far stretch for us to say, okay, if, if it reaches right into our, our time period in the modern church, then it's not a stretch to say in that, in that respect that there's nothing stopping any church in the modern era from fitting right into this mold. They can be an example and be just like this. In fact, that's why it's here. And that's why Paul is using the Macedonians to be the example for the Corinthian church. It passes right on down to us. People can be just like this. Churches can be just like this. And so, as we said, we can touch this first century church that there, right there. And now let's look at verse 2. Your copy of God's word. And we'll get our next principle. For I know your readiness, so it's obvious that you are ready to love. And we talked about all of that. They were set up. They were the first to do it. They inspired other people to do it. And then they fell off a little bit. For he says, I know, I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So obviously, this principle number two on this pathway of blessing, New Testament giving is contagious. And that's how it always works. See, no doubt it began as an individual type of zeal, and that spread and resulted in a corporate body zeal. It's always how it works in the church. People begin to be generous, and they begin to be uh, committed to doing it and single-minded about it, and they start doing it that way where it's sacrificial and faithful, and other people see that, and they see what's coming in, and they're like, man, I need to do that too. That's how that works. It's by good example. And so, uh, no doubt, that's how that worked there. That's how it works still. Now, look at verse 3. But I've sent the brethren, he says, I've sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be, yeah, that's it. But I sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in, that, in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared, verse 4, otherwise if any Macedonian comes with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So principle number three we saw last time on this pathway of blessing, when we give generously and faithfully and sacrificially and we follow through with our commitments, we avoid shame and negative testimony. That's always how it is. See, when, when you, you commit to do something and you don't follow through, there's always problems. It creates problems in the church. It created problems in the church then. Paul's worried that he's going to show up there and they're going to waffle on what they said they were going to do. And it's going to be a big negative testimony to people who are coming and kind of following their example and seeing that they're kind of uh, falling off. Now look at verse 5, if you would. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. So in other words, when the Corinthians first heard about the need in Jerusalem, they were very big on it. They're like, okay, we're going to get behind this in a big way. We're going to do big things. We're going to set aside a lot. It's going to be a big thing, and we're going to be you know, taking care of this need. They were moved to do that. And then we talked about why they fell off and all that. We won't go back into that today. So that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. And that's principle number four that we saw last time. On the pathway to blessing, a faithful, generous, giving church can be a critical credible model for other churches to follow it's a marvelous thing to think about the church's credibility is always at stake and 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 a generous giving wor- uh, uh, church which works its way out in practical ministry that's how that works right a generous giving church that's how the ministries expand people get behind it and that's one of the things that ensure our credibility and bring glory to Christ because we're faithful in doing the things that we said we were going to do and we follow through with them. Very important. But another part, another principle comes out of that, which is a, is a little bit more sobering remark. Look there. Paul's sending people on ahead of him for the church's accountability to prompt a desire for credibility in the Corinthian church. And he says this, not affected by any covetousness, see. And so principle number five on the pathway to blessing, New Testament giving, is giving that has prevailed over sin. And we saw that we can escape this sin of covetousness by being unselfish and generous. And it's one or the other. You've determined you're going to give, and then covetousness comes in when it's the question about, well, should I give as much as I said I was going to? You know, maybe I need to hold back because maybe I have some other bills or whatever might come up as if the Lord didn't know any of that. And then you start encroaching on what you said you were going to do. And so it's either generous, faithful, sacrificial giving, or there's covetousness involved. And it's always wanting to keep more or get more or whatever. And that works its way in, very insidious. We have to watch out for it. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, watch out for this. Follow through with what you said. Don't let covetousness rule you. We can escape that sin uh, by being unselfish and generous. That's what Paul's calling the church to do. And when we are that way, by understanding that these words are just as much for us as they were for the first century Corinthian church, we get the blessing of God's plan 
for our security. Now look at verse 6, if you would. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now this is part of God's plan that's revealed to us, a plan that's been in place all along, whether we've embraced it or not. It is a continuous plan we see all through the scriptures of God's provision uh, for those that are his. It's not unusual for him to say this, and it fits right in. I want to take a few, just a few minutes to let the Bible illustrate the Bible. Psalm chapter 145, 14. And this is one of my favorite passages, and you'll see why in just a second. I'll tell you the, pass- the, the words that always strike me. It's ones that I've talked to my boys about over the years, over and over, especially when we're out in the woods and we see all the things that happen. Here's what it says. Verse 14, it says, The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. And so the Lord's concerned about all who are having difficult times. Verse 15, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. All. The Lord provides the food for everyone in due time, just so that we know where it all comes from. And we looked at this passage briefly before. And then it says in verse 16, you open up your hand. Here's my favorite passage in all the Psalms. You open up your hand and satisfy the desire, mark this, of every living thing. I love that passage. That is, that's sovereignty encapsulated, isn't it? You open up your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. All the processes, all the things in place that work, everything that's ordered, and all of that that bring about everything that goes on on the earth that satisfies every living thing. Who opens their hand and makes that happen? The Lord does. That's his, that's his, that's his nature. His desire to take care of everything. It's his. Verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He'll fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him. Isn't that marvelous? Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. So honor him, praise him, bring glory to him, worship him, and in doing that, don't forget, verse 3, who pardons all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Proverbs eleven twenty four: there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more, and there is one who withholds what's justly due, yet it results only in one. In other words, there's somebody who gives faithfully and generously and that yet doesn't suffer any loss for it, and there's one who withholds what they should be giving, that's what's justly due, and yet it results only in want. You keep it and you think you'll be more well off, but you're not. Verse 25, the generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will be himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. He who is diligently seeks good, seeks favor, but he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Proverbs 19:17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Who takes care of the repayment? The Lord does. Is he interested in what goes on there? Apparently. Very interested. And, and I'll say this because these, are a, these next two verses are ones that get misused a lot. But even in the age of storehouse tithing, which we're not in, and, and we're going to look at more of that at the very end of our series, Why Not a Tithe? But even in the age of storehouse tithing, so it's required giving. Required tithing in the Old Testament is required giving, 23 and a third percent. It took care of the theocracy, those who served in the theocracy, the, the needs of the poor and all those kinds of things. That was required giving. The Lord said, give those things. I need you to do that every year. That's different from offerings, and we'll see that in just a minute. But uh, in, in Malachi, you'll see this, uh, this dialogue that's going on as they're approaching this intertestamentalist, this uh, silent years of 400 years. You're going to see this, this conversation going on with Israel. They've returned from, uh, from their, uh, their time in Babylon and and they're back, but they're doing a lot of the same things. And so it's a question-answer kind of thing. You can see, you can get the sense of it. Uh, will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? But you say, uh, how, have we, how have we robbed you? And then the Lord says, in tithes and offerings. Now, tithes is required giving. Offerings is uh, something different, as you would just bring it and give it. Verse 9, you're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. In other words, things are not going well for you. You're not doing what I asked you to do. And this is why they're not going well for you. Then it says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And you remember, 
part of the giving went to feed the, uh, those who were over the theocracy, and that's the part that he's talking about. You're not doing that. You're not doing the required giving. Now, we're, talking about, we're not talking about extra uh, offering types of giving. We're just talking about required giving, what we would consider taxes in these days, something you have to pay. So he says this, uh, do this, just do what I told you to do, okay? And, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, verse 11, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that you, it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine of the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. So here's the thing. Even in required giving of the 23 and a third percent, we talked about briefly before, and we'll do again at length, even in required giving, God promises to bless those who obey. That shouldn't surprise us. Obedience is always blessed. You faithfully do what the Lord says, and the Lord takes care of you. How about Luke 6.38? This is another one that's been misused. We see this taught on a lot, storehouse tithing. Bring the whole tithe into the church. I'm not talking about that, okay? It has its, it has its context. I just gave it to you. And then this Luke 6.38. Give, and it will be given to you. So there's the command and the, and the promise. Give, it will be given to you. They'll pour into your lap. How will they do it? They'll pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you in return. Now, both of those references, the one from Malachi and the one from Luke, a lot of those times, these are, these are used, and, and sometimes uh, pastors are guilty by association. These are used improperly to try to prompt people into believing the whole false theology, but it's no theology at all, of prosperity. That the Lord wants you rich, the Lord wants you wealthy, the Lord wants you uh, healthy, all of those kinds of things. And if you're not, it must be something to do with how uh, you've, you've got a problem in faith. It doesn't have anything to do with that at all. It's a continuous understanding of the good and gracious God who always gives back more than what was given. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme for the ungodly. It's just a simple understanding, an axiom, if you will, that this is how the Lord works. And those six references we just looked at, uh, out of hundreds we could have read, uh, those are things that tell us consistently that this is the way the Lord deals with those who are his. And there's this old quote from Henry Ward Beecher. It says, what I spent, I had. What I saved, I lost. What I gave, I have. Just looking from a heavenly perspective, that what you spent, you had, but you don't have anymore. Uh, what I saved, I lost. What I gave, in other words, uh, as I understood the Lord's, uh, the Lord's instruction here, I still have. And, and God's plan has been here all along uh, God ha is a God of blessing, he's a God of generosity, always takes care of his own, and what we give away to do his work, he pays back. Just very simple. And a believer who's generous never needs to fear not having enough. Uh, God will continually outgive you, and many of you could, you could give a testimony of that over and over again. He'll continually outgive you and return a generous gift to you beyond your expectation and beyond even your proportion, which we see in Luke 6.38. And the passage we'll look at for the next several weeks, verses 6 through 15, will just reaffirm this really great theme of God's goodness and faithfulness and generosity towards people repeated all throughout the scriptures. So when we read from our passage in verse 6, when Paul says this, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, that shouldn't surprise us. The one of the wonderful things about this passage, as we saw last time, it's a self-evident truth. In other words, it doesn't have to be defended. And because it's clearly speaking of offering and money, that's the only thing it could be talking about in this context, that makes it all the more remarkable. And as we noted last week, every farmer knows this principle. It has to be there in the form of a seed before it can come in the form of the harvest. And they're proportional. Plant sparingly, reap sparingly. Plant generously, Reap bountifully. And then add Luke 6.38 to it. In addition to what you have given, the Lord gives back more, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, we see the same principle again. It's a, it's a self-evident truth. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. Here it is. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So here's the principle again. But here it's applying to the fruit of walking according to the flesh, or walking according to the Holy Spirit. So if you're walking according to the flesh and you're planting seeds according to the flesh, that's the harvest you get back from the flesh. And the, from the flesh reaps corruption. That's what it says. If you want to live like the world, from the world you'll reap corruption. Christians can fall into this. It's the same as non-believers. Obviously live in there constantly. And of course, sowing to the Spirit, which just means fruits of the Spirit, doing what the Lord says, being obedient to His Word, you reap back the blessings that come and the harvest that comes from that. So the principle still applies. So in our passage, in verse 6, now this I say, 
He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We're going to see our principle number six on the pathway of blessing. Here it is. Very simple, very obvious. When we sow free will giving to God, we're promised to reap a harvest back from him. I mean, it's very clear. And as we mentioned at the beginning, and here it is, when we very importantly believe that simple axiom, see, we'll be more faithful and more generous than we've ever been before. And and when we believe in the promise of God to do this and the power of God to accomplish it, it's going to show up in our giving. And, and here's, here's the thing, see. Um, the world says, you know, be prosperous by hoarding and cheating and shortchanging and taking advantage and shrewd dealing and being hard-nosed and worrying about everything. You know, God says, be prosperous by giving generously and I'll restore what you've given and I'll press it down and I'll shake it together and I'll let it overflow. So apparently, then, if you just want to make it real here, it's the lack of generosity that deprives believers. Here's the question. Do you believe that? Because it can't mean anything else. See, here's where it gets hard. He's talking to the church in Corinth, but he's talking to you too and to me. Paul wanted to motivate the Corinthians to give, so the Holy Spirit carries them along to do it first by the example of the Macedonians. So he holds them up and says, this is what... The Holy Spirit at work in the lives of believers through finances is going to look like. That's the standard for giving. And then by instruction, so he says, listen, it's just not willy-nilly do whatever you want because it's grace-prompted giving. There's a hard attitude. There's honesty. There's self-evaluation. There's motivation. And now he's doing it by revealing the blessings attached to the obedience. See, So he just kind of works his way through. And this last one certainly is in line with the positive reward all throughout his word to those who are faithful. And again, just a few examples. Not only does God just take care of those who are his, there's positive reward connected to obedience. That's not unusual. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. The Lord's given his, his, uh, his law out, and we're going to see this, a couple of passages here. He gives the law, and then he says, Now, in, now then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... And you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So, uh, translated, everything and everyone is God's in an ownership sense. Everybody, whether they say they're his, whether they say they believe in him, it doesn't matter. The world and everybody in it all belongs to the Lord. But in specific, as Israel obeys his commands, they become a special possession. He owns everything already, but Israel is singled out if they'll obey what the Lord says. That's not a hard thing to do, right? I mean... And, and, and it's not a big expectation. If Jesus is Lord, then that means he's the what? He's the boss. And if the boss says something, then you what? See, there's no wiggle room there, and it's not any different than it was in the Old Testament. If the Lord says to do something, then you do it. And by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you become more like his son when you respond in obedience to what the Lord says. So it's, it's not a hard thing, like somehow he's asking us to do some extra special thing because we really like to do what we want. If you're a believer, this is obvious. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol. So he, the God has given his top 10. These are things that you, I definitely don't want you to do. Okay? And then, uh, it's a great way to witness, by the way. Just ask people, have you ever stolen anything? You know, have you ever lusted after anybody? Have you ever used God's name in vain? You know, that kind of thing. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, well, you broke three of the 10 top things the Lord could. He could have said 100 top 10 things, but he singled out 10 things. He doesn't want you to do. You already broke three of them. That, that's not a good start. Okay? But good news for you, Christ came to fulfill the law in your place. And because he fulfilled the law in your place and then went to death, your death, for you, you can have eternal life through Jesus' payment. That's a marvelous thing to think about. But here he's, he's, given, it, he's given the law, and then he says, he, he explains a little bit more, you shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness of what's in the heavens or above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. So don't, don't take anything that's been made and turn it into something you're going to worship. Did people do it? Oh yeah, almost right away. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. You hate me when you do this, and there'll be consequences for your choices. But... Showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and what? Keep my commandments. And that's not so far off from 1 John 3, right? We keep his commandments. That's how we love God and his commandments are not burdensome. So we see this exact same thing. How about Leviticus 26? And those who read, you know, yearly through the Bible, you've, 
You've worked your way through Exodus and Numbers over and over again. I hope you were diligent to do it. I know it's hard, and there is a lot of stuff you got to weed through, and you, you got to kind of separate it out what was cultural for that time, what's uh, appropriate for us, because that's how you do that in the Old Testament, what's still appropriate, what isn't. And so um, he is uh, giving out uh, the laws according to the Levites, what they're going to do, what kind of sacrifices they're going to make, and all this. And then he says this in verse 3, he says, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, what, what's going to happen? I'm just going to say, oh, well, that's what you were supposed to do. Well, that is what you were supposed to do. But verse 4 says, then I shall give you rains in their seasons so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Oh, so there's some blessing connected to obedience? Sure, that's pretty consistent throughout all the, all the scriptures. Verse 5, indeed, your threshing, for, your threshing will last for you until the grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. So what's that mean? It just means that you're gathering grapes, and it's time to gather grain, and you're not even done gathering all the grapes because there's so many. Now you've got to start with grain, and you know, you're going to have to have a lot of staff to keep up with how the Lord blesses you for being obedient. Thus, you will, you will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. Does that mean you're going to be on rations? No. That means you're going to have way more than you need. And we're going to see that over and over again. I shall also grant peace to the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. In other words, so not only are you going to have what you need and more than you need and and in abundance, I'm going to let you be at peace and you're not going to be worried about those people who are your enemies. And I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. So there's not going to be any war there. Verse 7, but you will chase your enemies and they'll fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you. So not only are you going to have what you need more than you need, not are you going to be dwelling safely in the land, then also your family is going to grow and the Lord's going to be uh, a blessing to you. And so I'll turn toward you, make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you, which was part of that was that I'm going to make you as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea. That's precisely what he said I'm going to to do i'll fulfill that and you're going to get the land all that thrown in you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new in other words you've taken your harvest in and it's still so plentiful and now you've got all new harvest and you still got the old harvest so you got to clear that out just to make room does that sound like money's immoral does that sound like uh if you have a lot that somehow uh, you profane god no of course not who owns it all the lord does right and if he chooses to give you in abundance then he chooses to give you in abundance and that's a that's a blessing and then you respond to him in generous, generosity and faithfulness and, and sacrifice and all of that and, and sharing and be rich and ready to share and all the things that we looked at. So in Deuteronomy chapter 5, kind of moving through the law, God and Moses are speaking and then Moses has passed it on down and God says this to Moses to tell the people, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments always. Well, why would we want to do that? Well, so that it will be well with them and their sons forever. So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you, and you shall not turn aside to the right or the left. Is that, is that uh, an overbearing God that's asking the impossible from us? No. Doesn't it make sense? Again, if the Lord is Lord, then it should follow that we don't turn to the right or the left. Right? I mean, it's just obvious, isn't it? I mean, I know, you know, sometimes a modern church is a mile wide and an inch deep, and it just kind of does what it wants, and it's very, uh, you know, very subjective in obedience. Well, maybe I won't, maybe I won't, and it doesn't really count right now because I, I don't feel like it, and, you know, they're doing this to me or whatever. No, what's it say? Okay, obedience means that um, you don't turn to the right or the left. You shall, you shall walk in the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, and he has a right to command you, right? Because he does own other things, and everybody belongs to him, and his law is the supreme measurement and the standard for everybody forever. So it shouldn't surprise us. He says, obey it, and don't turn to the right or to the left. It's, it's, it's a very minimal thing to ask for those who say that, he, that we are his, see? You shall walk all the way in which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. So again, very similar, Deuteronomy 29.9. So keep the words of the covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. Same thing, Deuteronomy 15, speaking to the, you know, the promised land inheritance. However, there will be no poor among you since the Lord will surely bless you in the land uh, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance to possess. Well, he's going to bless you if you what? If you're obedient. If you're obedient, there's a lot of things that are going to come from that. And it says, if only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God to observe, here it is, carefully all this commandment which i am commanding you today i would say that in the modern church uh, a very large majority of christians don't even 
know what the Lord has asked them to do. They have have the foggiest clue how the Lord has instructed them in some parts of their life. And it's obvious by how they make their choices and how they live. But here we're supposed to know. So obviously being in the word is going to be good because you'll know what that says. See, And then Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. In other words, you're going to know what it says, and then you're going to think about what it says so that you may be careful to what? Do according to all that is written in it, for then what? Then I'll be satisfied that you did what I told you, just like a good kid. No, then, then you'll make your way prosperous, then you'll have success. Why? The Lord rewards those who are obedient, just like we do with our kids. There's negative reward, which is a spanking when they disobey, and there's positive reward when they obey and do great things, right? I mean, that's how the Lord deals with you, and that's how we deal with our children. King Solomon, 1 Kings 8, 23. I'm spending some time here, so I want you to see, we're not manufacturing some new thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that hasn't always been the case. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no one like you in heaven, above or on earth, beneath. This is Solomon praying, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You show loving kindness. It's the same word we've seen over and over again. David's charge to Solomon, only give, uh, only the Lord give you discretion and understanding and give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God, then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel, be strong and courageous, do not fear or be dismayed. And what did Solomon do? Well, he started, he had a good start, but he got, he got sidetracked, didn't he, because of, of materialism, because of power, uh, you know, self-centeredness, that kind of thing, and he moved off from where the Lord, so the Lord wasn't able to fulfill the promises he wanted to fulfill with him. Elihu, uh, speaking to Job in Job chapter 36, verse 10, just got through going through this book not that long ago. Now, you know, one of the things you read, Job's responses are really good. Uh, you read, you don't want to be one of the counselors, okay? It's like the Pharisees of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you don't want to be one of Job's counselors. They were terrible. Job says it numerous times. Why were they terrible? Well, because they constantly said that Job must be being punished because he's sinful, and if he wasn't so uh, self-centered and arrogant, he would realize that he's offended the God who he says he worships, and he just get his heart right, which was completely wrong, right? Because Job was being made a heavenly example, and nobody on earth really knew what was going on. Even Job didn't really understand that he was being used as a heavenly example against our adversary, our still our adversary, Satan himself, who's roaming around the earth, and, and the Lord says, you know, and obviously accusing men of just living like they wanted. Hey, if you looked at Job, well, of course you bless Job. He's really rich, and, you know, he's really healthy. He's got a family and he's like okay well take away everything that he has and he'll still love me and so okay satan goes takes everything he has and i'm summing up uh the book of Job. takes everything he has and does he still love him yes he does naked i came to the world and naked i'll go out blessed be the name of the lord his wife said you know curse the lord and die he's like you don't be foolish the lord has a right to take it away and he has a right to give it and so satan comes back up and it's like oh yeah well Job still loves you because you know he's healthy okay take away his health but you can't take his life just take his health so he takes his health does Job still love the Lord? Yes, he does. Does he wish he wasn't, hadn't been born? Yes. If you were in terrible pain like that, I mean, you know, many of you have had terrible pain. You probably wish at some point. It's like when you have the stomach flu, right? You, you think you're going to die, and then you're afraid you're not going to, right? I mean, it's kind of like that, you, you, except much worse. And so, you know, here's Job doing this. So the counselors are all wrong, but occasionally, if you read carefully with the counselors, they do say some right things. It's not like they say everything wrong, and here is one that's right. Here's what he says. He says, um, God opens the ear to instruction, commands that they return from evil. So the Lord is calling his people back constantly. If they hear and they serve him, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. Well, that's not wrong, right? I mean, when you change from the way you were doing it to the way that honors the Lord, that's not wrong to say that the Lord will bless that obedience. So that's right. We can say that's okay. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. My son, he says, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they'll add to you. Again, and, and that's a very small sampling. There are thousands of passages that we could have read. There are benefits to obedience to God, not the least of which is self-preservation, right? I mean, I think we can catch that from a lot of the passages. Uh, the least of the benefits is that you'll live because the Lord has the right to take, right? When you sin, before, when you sin, does the Lord have the right to take your life? Is he the God of all creation? Yes. Are you being rebellious to him? Yes. Do we see that in the New Testament, that some people sin as a sin unto death? Yes. Right? The Lord just says, okay, you know, I'm tired of you blowing your testimony. I'm tired of you living like this. I'm just going to take you. So, sure, 
So, you know, self-preservation is, is a good reason to be obedient. I mean, it's not the only reason. It certainly, we just, won't, we just want to stay alive, Lord, so I'm going to obey you, okay? And he's like, child, I, I've, I've promised to show loving kindness to generations after you if you just obey my voice. So, just in case you were wondering, you know, because people look at that and they say, okay, well, you know, the whole giving thing, you know, somebody could say, okay, well, I don't really love the Lord, but I'm just going to give a bunch away because I'll get it all back. Well, there's a problem with that whole thing, right? Because um, passages that deal with blessings of giving really won't appeal to a greedy person. This is not going to be their get-rich-quick scheme. I'll give everything away so the Lord will give me more. And a greedy person won't give like our passages say to give to get anything because why? Well, number one, he doesn't believe God. That God is either powerful enough or willing to do what he says. And number two, he loves money. And anytime you love money, you're not giving it away. You're going to try to accumulate more. A greedy person won't give like we see here in this way any more than a carnal person will keep God's teachings and keep his heart on God's commandments so that he will get length of days and years of life and peace added to him. Because why? Well, a carnal person loves this present world and he loves the pleasures of sin more. So they're not going to give it up so that they can have long life peace. They want to live, the, live it up now. So these passages are only going to appeal, listen, to the pure of heart. God is faithful to reward obedience, and this is how he sometimes chooses to do it, in the realm of money and possessions, see? And he also knows how to do it in length of days and years of life and peace. And I've said over and over again, we know how to give good gifts to our children, don't we? Where did we learn that? We learned it from our Heavenly Father. Does he know how to give back to you in a bunch of different kinds of ways? Sure he does. If you have a family and you've been faithful to the Lord and you've been giving faithfully, you know he keeps you from going to the dentist. He keeps the car from breaking down. You know, just think about the stuff that you had to go through. Now, I'm not saying that if you're going through a difficult time, that's automatically you must be disobedient to the Lord and the Lord's taking you through that. It could be, and that's what we're studying now, but it could be also the Lord wants you to rely more on him. He'd like you to pray more. He'd like to mold you more in the shape of his son. So he's taking you through hard times and polishing you up. I mean, there's all kinds of ways and reasons. We don't want to fall into the same trap that Job's counselors fell into, and it only has to be one thing. But if the Lord's taking you through a tight time, realize, you know, this is the way the Lord might be conforming you to the image of his son. But these things are going to appeal to the pure in heart. And God is faithful to award obedience. And he knows how to do that. Now look at verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is a very unique verse. And I love this. Verse 7 says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's a really cool thing to think about. Each one just means that every believer has the prospect of doing this. Everybody has the opportunity to put themselves in this position. Now, I'm going to look at this verb, and I'm going to get a little bit more information on it perhaps than you, you would normally have or would even want. He has purposed perfect middle indicative. It's a compound verb. Prohahi rohami. Pro is before, and hahi rohami is to select or choose. And, and the idea is that it was used in ancient times of electing someone to office. In other words, all the votes come in, and then we already know who's the winner, and then the winner goes there. Um, it's literally, literally the word is to decide beforehand. It, it's translated predestined many times in the New Testament. So for all you non-election folk, okay, this is a real problem for you because the same word used here and what it means is also used in the passages that deal with election. So predetermining, predeciding, this is, this is the issue here, and this is the word. And it's used to deal with how you deal with what belongs to you and how you give. So the basic thought of, of the perfect tense is that it's the progress of an action that's been completed, and the results of the action are continuing in full view. It's already been established. That's the perfect in the Greek. Okay. So the middle voice is the subject of acting in your own self-interest. So you're working to do this. This is something you're participating in. So you're making a decision beforehand. It's you acting on and putting to death your own self-will and putting to death your own uh, your desire to have more and greed and whatever. And then the indicative mood just means this is a statement of fact. It's the mood of reality. So, you know, and I included that understanding, which, which we do from time to time, because the verb is the key to really understanding our next principle in the pathway of blessing that we see here when someone does what they purposed to do. So deliberate, intentional, thought-out, conscious, predetermined action of giving. And we know from before that this is done from the heart of their own free will, so that would exclude impulsiveness.
that equals a cheerful giver. So catch this. Look at the verse again. It says, each one must do as he's purposed in his heart. And then this parenthetical statement, really, not grudgingly or under compulsion. So that's some added to, to clarify. For God loves a cheerful giver. So you could take not grudgingly and under compulsion out and say, each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart. For God loves a cheerful giver. And so someone who predetermines what they're going to do and has decided they're going to be generous and no matter what happens, they're going to give a certain amount, they're going to be faithful to it, and they're going to trust the Lord to give back what they gave plus some extra. When you do that, that equals a cheerful giver. See? And here's the most wonderful part of the passage, and this is, this is principle number seven. On the pathway of blessing, the individual who follows through with a predetermined, that's what it's talking about, single-minded giving is the recipient, mark this, of a special love from God to them. That's what it says. God loves a cheerful giver. And that is precisely what the Holy Spirit carries Paul along to say. And so here's the question. As the text comes right into our church, would you like to enjoy a special love from God? If you would, then you give in this way. Now, of course, we're going to see in a moment that it would also be true that giving done grudgingly or under compulsion is the opposite of a cheerful giver. In other words, giving that is habitual or, or irrational or compulsive or you know, obligatory, ritualistic, if you will, you know, indifferent, selfish token kinds of giving. You know, there goes the plate, I'm just throwing something in. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to be sacrificial. I'm not going to be generous. You know, I'm not thinking about any of these principles. I'm just kind of doing what I want. That kind of giving is not the purposed in the heart kind of giving. God hates that kind of giving. And as we think about this special love, and, and we're going to begin to wrap up today, but I, want, I want to clarify something uh, because you might think, well, you know, God loves everybody. Well, yes uh, and no. Um, Proverbs chapter 5, or Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he demonstrated his love by sending Christ to die for us, right? And, and John tells us in 1 John 4.10, uh, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And how did he show it? He sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sins. And, and this kind of love from God for the believer is more secure than any kind of love we know in this world. This is the most secure love. But that's not the love that we're talking about in our passage. And just for illustration purposes, I want you to think about this. If you have children, this is be very clear to you. But it can be uh, that way with, with siblings or friends or whatever. You, know, you love your children. Uh, hopefully, you love them unconditionally. In other words, you're going to always love them regardless of what they do. You're going to have love for them. That's not going to change. But here's the question. What happens if uh, when one of them does something really special in obedience? What, what happens if they do something really self-sacrificing for someone else? Is there a change in your heart towards that individual? Of course there is. Of course. I mean, you love all your children, but when you see special acts of obedience, that's important, isn't it? You recognize that, and there's a, there's a warm spot there. You just think, wow, they, they are really, they understand what it means to love that way. They understand what it means to be self-sacrificing. And it's just a big joy and an extra kind of love, special beyond the love that you had unconditionally for them, is there, see? And John chapter 3, verse 16, you know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, uh, but have eternal life. You know, God loves the entire world in a certain way. He loved them enough to what? Send his son, right? And we know he loves those who are his children in an even more wonderful way. It's, it's precisely what we read just a minute ago when it talked about Israel, right? That the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and, uh, and they're all his possessions. So from an ownership perspective, he owns the whole world. But what was Israel? They were a special possession. Why? Because they were obedient. So it's exactly the same idea here, see? God loves the world in a, in a certain way. We know he loves those who are children in an even more wonderful way. He calls them sons, he adopts them into his family, and he makes them joint heirs with Christ. But this verse adds to our understanding of God's love. How does it add to it? Well, it tells us that God loves some who are his children in an even more special way. And it's those who are what? Those who are cheerful givers. And what's a cheerful giver? Well, it's somebody who's predetermined what they're going to do, and they do it without any kind of compulsion to do anything else. See, they're single-minded about it. They've weeded out all of the, all the greed and all the, 
all the things to covetousness and, and they're just going to do it and they know God's going to give it back and it's not going to matter what happens afterwards, see, because the Lord is faithful and I believe him, see, that's that, that kind of single-minded kind of giving. And you know, so here's some questions for you and you can kind of weed this out because, you know, again, this, this comes up from time to time incorrectly in, in different situations. Here's the question. Will all believers stand before the throne of Christ forgiven in their robe of righteousness? What's the answer to that? Yes. Every born-again believer will stand before the throne of Christ in their robe of righteousness. No questions about that. If you have cast your sin on him and believed in him in faith that he has paid for it, you will stand before the Lord completely restored to the perfectness that God has planned for you. That's, that's everybody's final place if you come to know Christ as your Savior. Second question. Will all believers be there because of Christ's love for them? What's the answer to that? Yes. That's the only reason you're going to be there. He gave his life for you. That's the ultimate in sacrifice. Praise, praise the Lord for his indescribable gift. That's what we just read a couple weeks ago, right? You're going to be there for, because of his love for you. Now, here's another question. Will all believers have crowns as a result of attitude and service? No. Definitely not. I, I don't see how we can possibly say that we would. And how about this? Will all believers here, well done, good and faithful servant? No, except you'd think that that was the case with every, with every uh, funeral I've ever gone to when I've heard people say, oh, and you know, they write, oh, they, I, they heard well done, good and faithful servant. I'm sorry, I knew that person. They, di they didn't hear that. And how do I know that? Well, if the Bema seat is what we understand it to be, which is everything you've built on the foundation of Christ, you can't faith, is either built out of gold, silver, and precious stones, or it's built out of wood, hay, and stubble, right? We, we, we studied that in 1 Corinthians. So, if you go to the Bema Seed and everything you've built on that foundation of Christ, there's your robe of righteousness, has been wood, hay, and stubble, what does the Bema Seed judgment say is going to happen? Everything you've done in your life is going to be tried by fire, and then whatever is pure, gold, silver, and costly stones, will remain, and what wasn't is taken away. And it goes on to say, if you remember, that some will escape as if through the flames, as if by fire. And, and the idea there is, it's as if someone... The house catches on fire, they run out with the clothes they have on, and everything is consumed. That's the idea. So that means somebody's going to be standing there in their robe of righteousness, which they receive because of their faith in Christ, but with nothing else to show for an entire life lived for their own purposes and under their own auspices and with their own set of priorities. Do you think then they're going to turn around and the Lord's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? No. Will he say, you know, welcome to heaven, come in? Yes. Did he shed his blood for them? Yes. Was it because of his, of his great love for them? Sure it was. See? But I think it's important to realize that it's possible to live a life completely for yourself for the most part and come away with not much left to show. See? And, it, and this is the way it works now. See? There's a special kind of love for those who are cheerful givers. God has a love for everyone but there's a special place in his heart for those who do this. And you know, when Jesus taught, and we looked at Jesus in giving, you know, he, twice as many times on money and wealth and possessions as heaven and hell. And I would say heaven and hell is pretty important. But he understood where the, where the roadblocks were and the trip up is, and it's still there. See. So Paul says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. And again, I just marked this, beloved. Everybody has the opportunity to experience a special love, just like everyone has the opportunity to build on the foundation with more than wood and hay and stubble, which is made up of your own selfishness and your own self-serving and just doing things your way, okay? You have the choice of building differently, just like you have the choice of participating in something that puts you in a special category, just like your children when they respond in such a way that it's just so evident that the love and generosity and faithfulness and sacrifice are there. And so you can have that, you can experience that special love and we're to give whatever it is that we want to give from an uncoerced heart. We saw that in chapter eight, right? Does it, not the amount. Uh, certainly it's in proportion, but it's not the amount. It's not whether or not you give a lot because you make a lot. It's, it's whether or not your heart is pure and single-minded about it. And we'll see that this, that's the same attitude God looked for from of old. And we're going to see that when we conclude this series and messages on one out of tithe. But just as a teaser, when the Lord instructed Moses to take up an offering for the building of the tabernacle and teaching his people how to give and handle finances, here's what he said. We're going to look at this passage at length. But um, in Exodus 25, 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. Now, that's not, that's not uh, required giving. That's not the tithe. 
He just, he, there's some money needed to do something. So he said, tell the sons of Israel, we need, we need, we need a contribution as unto the Lord. You're going to bring what you have. And obviously that's going to, that's going to be gold and silver and costly stones. It's also going to be some other things. And if you read the rest of the passage, you can see what it is. And then mark this. What's it say? From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. Does it say, I want you to give two seal skins and five pieces of gold and four pieces of silver? No. What does it say? Just take a contribution from every man whose, what does it say? Heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. And isn't that exactly the same thing we just saw in chapter 7? Each one of you must do just as he has purposed in his heart. That's precisely the same type of giving, see? Think about it beforehand, pray about it beforehand, make a decision as your heart directs you beforehand, and follow through with a single-minded purpose. And then, here's the, here's the parenthetical part, not grudgingly, that's the noun lupe, so not sorrowfully, not sadly, literally, it's not regretfully. God doesn't want us to give and feel badly about it or, or sorrowful that we did it, see? And that thought process, if you're thinking, how would that be? It might be like this. Maybe you feel like you should give, Maybe it's because you set in on a bunch of messages and you realize that, that you know, God has the right to some of what you have in proportion. And, uh, or maybe you, you should give, you think you should give because there's an immediate need. You can see the need, or it's an ongoing need, like in the church where we, we function constantly under, with ministry, and you know it's an ongoing need, and you know it needs to be met. You know, it's not just somebody else's job to do it, and you should be doing it. And you know God expects you to do it, so you already know the expectation there. And, and you'd like to invest uh, what you have with him. Here it is. But in your heart, you're really not happy about doing it. That, that is grudgingly. And beloved, I, I, I think it's safe to say um, God's not happy with that type of giving. And, and I would also think it's safe to say that you would have the same blessing if you just kept it or spent it on something else. Because that's not the kind of giving he wants. There's no blessing connected to that, see? Because that's not the type of giving we just looked at. A single-minded type of giving. A predetermined thing that you're going to do, see? And what's, what's the other part? You, well, you can change your attitude. That's why it says, let each one. That's the whole idea. Do just as he purposed in his heart. You can change your attitude. And, and when you're talking about sacrificial giving, and when you do that and you don't feel sorry about it, see, that's evidence of a transformed heart, and that's a person to whom God is well-pleased and part of the special love from him to you. So not grudgingly, here's the other part, are under compulsion, N and K, from out of necessity. Literally, the word has to do with from between the arms. And so you can probably remember this if you had children. You know, you have one child who has a toy that the other child wants, and the one child has a toy locked inside their arms, and they're not going to give it up, and the other child's trying to get it out, and it's like this huge tug-of-war battle, World War III kind of thing that goes on, right? That's, that's the idea of the word under compulsion. In other words, forcefully pulled from your grasp. So the first one, not grudgingly, has to do with internal attitudes. You're wrestling with, I'm not really happy with doing this. I don't know if the Lord's going to replace it. I, we may not have enough if we do it, that kind of thing. And the second one, not under compulsion, has to do with external demands. Giving with the wrong internal attitude, giving because external pressure, uh, we give up our reward. And again, I would just say, you know, giving uh, when it's forcefully pulled from your grip, uh, you'd be just as well off if you just spent it on something else. See. So... God loves a cheerful giver. There's only one way to give, and that's cheerfully. And that person falls into this unique category of God's special love. And in that respect, that's a very unusual verse, which is worth taking note of. And we're going to close with this. The New Century Version says it this way. I like the simplicity of how the, the New Century Version says it. It says, each one should give as you've decided in your heart to give. So predetermined amount, doing it beforehand. You should not be sad when you give, and you should not give because you feel forced to give. God loves the person who gives happily. And I don't know about you, beloved, but I want to experience that. And we'll look more at that next week, as the Lord wills, that we'll get back into this passage. But I'd like you to bow with me, if you would, as we turn to the Lord for, in prayer. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We, we always say that, but the the thankfulness and the gratefulness is not diminished by the amount of times we say it. In fact, I think much like prayer, we're, we're more inclined and keen to be in your word after we've been in it for a while than we were even before we started. And so we're grateful for that effect on us. We desire to know it and to do it and to read it every day. And I pray that, that you'll 
You'll prompt us more and more to do that and to be together as we see the day approaching. Your Father, as we read all of this, so, so many things uh, that we covered that have to do with the attitude, and it's not your desire that, it, that people feel guilty, not your desire that you feel badly. We didn't go through the section so people would feel badly about themselves or about what they do, but that you, they would hear what your word says, understand the blessing connected with obedience, and respond willingly as we should to the one who is our master. So that's my prayer, Father. Work in the hearts today as you need to. You know each one's resources. You know each one's choices. And you've also said, give and it'll be given to you. The command and the promise. Shaking together, pressed down and overflowing. Pour into your lap. Sow a small amount, reap a small amount. Sow a large amount, reap a large amount. It's very simple axiomatic phrases that have to do with the reality of how you take care and have established the security of those who are yours. And as Israel looked at your promises long ago and then really spurned them as they lived like they wanted, so hard to imagine, but we do the same thing. Because you haven't changed. You promise obedience, uh, those who are obedient to you, blessing, and some of that includes the way that uh, we're supplied for what we need and, and uh, many other things long life and peace. And so, Father, I pray that you work in our hearts. Help us to be churches like the churches we see in Macedonia. There's nothing wrong with aspiring to be that kind of way. In fact, that's why it's there, so we could aspire to it. I pray that we'll be that kind of church here. There'll be multiple churches around the nation that are like that, that the ministry will go on and expand, that people will uh, have opportunity to hear the gospel, that missionaries will go out, that all the kinds of things that are part of faithful, sacrificial, generous giving, which really makes its way into practical ministry. So, Father, thank you for this. Clarify these things in our own heart. Help us to make decisive action as we understand what you say, what you mean by what you say, and what you require us to do. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.